Father, for this next little time together, please guide me. There's so many questions that have come my way now that I could probably spend the whole time just responding to good questions. And, and yet I've got some material here to work through and give me discernment as to where to linger and think out loud about questions and, and where to pursue the material. Let's grant a, a wonderful eagerness in everybody's heart to grow. Some of us in this room feel discouraged and put upon because we're not there as a submissive wife or a leading husband, and we want to do better. I pray that would be the mindset of everybody. We want to do better, and, and we don't have to be all-or-nothing people. We can be incremental people. That's all we can do in this world is, is try to go farther than where we are now. And who knows that if there were an increment this year and another increment next year, that 10 years from now, it would have been a move that we would have thought undoable. So work your incremental miracles or your revolutionary miracles in our hearts and minds, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to talk about submission next. Now, we could have done it from Ephesians 5. But it's more helpful, I have found, to do it from 1 Peter 3. We'll go there in just a minute. So I'm trying to figure out where to stick in questions that have come my way. And uh, so I make a judgment call here. Just say a little more about spiritual leadership at home. <clears throat> that question down here and, and questions that have come my way last night and this morning show that that's a huge issue. Um... A lot of men have come into marriages, they've, they've either gotten saved after marriage or they were baby Christians with very little training before. The wife, either before or after, kind of skyrocketed ahead, began to read, began to study, began to be in Bible study fellowship or whatever, and, and suddenly she is feeling like, come on, let's go, and he's behind her. Now, when that happens, what does a guy do? He can't snap his finger and become like this woman. She just feels like she's, she's bolted into a maturity of biblical awareness and, and so on. And, and he feels like, well, I'm, Pastor says I'm supposed to be a spiritual leader. She's clearly two miles ahead. I can barely see the dust, the dust behind her. And, and uh, so let me just say... Give you hope, guys. I want to give you hope because that's the situation many, many are in. Don't panic about that. It may be true that you'll never catch her in one sense. If she's aggressively a Bible lover, she's got more time than you maybe, too, to read her Bible, right, and study. And I don't know how her life works, but <clears throat> she's ahead. And her, her, she's wired to be more reflective and contemplative and thoughtful. And, and you're sort of a pragmatic guy. And you like to work on the car and, and hunt and, and uh, whatever. And, and, you know, it's just the, the, the reading, just reading is a, is, a, is a labor. I've dealt with all kinds of people, guys like that. And so how does a guy like that provide spiritual leadership? He's a pragmatic guy. 
and she's a reflective intellectual guy. I mean, gal. <laughs> Sorry. And and, uh, and 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 he feels there's no way that I could be what you're calling me to be. And I just want to say, no, 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 no. There is a way. You do not have to be more intellectual, more competent, or more theologically attuned to be a spiritual leader. That sounds strange. Now, she might like it if you'd catch up and pass and kind of be the theologian of the household. But don't, don't let that paralyze you. Here's, here's an example of what I would mean by incremental growth in spiritual leadership if you feel like that's your, your situation. I'll give you a real concrete example of a situation Bethlehem from... They're still there. They're, they're in, in the church. And this was from 20 years ago, say. They come to my office... It's not working at all. He is totally passive. She's very aggressive. She's more educated, more articulate, more intelligent, uh, more almost everything. And he's smoking in the basement. And not even coming upstairs. Watching TV. Three kids. No spiritual leadership. Nothing. Paralyzed, feeling defeated, inferior, helpless, and willing to come and talk to me about it, which is very helpful. It came several times. And let's give you one. They're doing really quite well now. He, he made some amazing breakthroughs. He really did. She's still smarter, more articulate, more biblically literate, more everything almost, but happy because he's taking these initiatives. So I said to him, okay, You've got an eighth grade education. That's true. She's a high school graduate with some college. And uh, just by nature, she's verbal, and he's not. He, um, I, I, I don't want to give too many details. You might figure out who they are. Um, let's say he's a carpenter. He's like a carpenter, but he's not a carpenter. <laughs> he's in a trade. He's got a trade. He's not a, not a lawyer, not a doctor. <clears throat> And uh, there are hundreds of people like that in our church, and the world would not go around without them, believe me. And I thank God for people who are good with their hands. i got sons who are intellectual and sons with hands. So I know both kind. And they come from the same genetic framework. I don't regard one as superior or inferior as a person. Okay. I said, now, let's call them Joe and Jane. So I can use a name. Jane can read better than you. You stumble in reading. You probably got some dyslexic issues. And, and Jane talks more clearly and, and fluidly than you do. And, and Jane knows her Bible. And, and you feel behind in all those areas. Can you do this? Here's what I would suggest. Can, can you call your three children together at night, at say at 8 o'clock, and say, let's, let's have devotions? Can you say those words and... You got enough control of your kids to say, come to the living room, it's 8 o'clock. We do devotions at 8 o'clock. Now, this may shock them because you've not said it for a long, long time. But can you do that? I suppose. Yes, you can do that. Okay, you, you can do that. When they get together, you, can you say, now, I'm, I'm the head of this home, and Mommy likes it that way, and you kids need to know that way. I take the initiative, and... Uh, when you need to be spanked, 
I'm the one who should step up first, though mom has the right to. And so we're going to just make sure that you know that uh, I'm the head of the home here, and we're going to do devotions. And I've decided that we're going to read through the Gospel of John. And uh, every night we'll read a paragraph or two, and then and then we'll pray. And so uh, we'll start with chapter one tonight, and we'll just do it each night. So Jane, would you would you take take our big family Bible here and and read whatever first few paragraphs of chapter one? So he didn't have to read because when he reads, he stumbles, and the kids kind of daddy can't read very well. So he's passed that one off, but clearly the leader in this situation. Jane reads it with joy busting out of her heart that he's called the family together. And uh, when she's done reading, I said, now, Jim, can you, at that moment, can you look to your, say, your oldest son or, or one of the kids and say, now, what did you get from that? Why don't you, why don't you pray for us, Joey, um, and, and uh, that God would, would reveal... Um, in that first paragraph about Jesus is the Word of God, and that he he might I mean this may be hard for him, and he wouldn't have to do all that, but he could listen carefully and try to draw something out and have Joey pray about it, draw it out, apply it to Joey, or or he could turn to his wife and say, "How do you think that applies to Joey? Just make her do it, you know, because <laughs> he didn't quite understand the paragraph maybe yet. And, uh, and then, Joey, you pray for us tonight. Pray for us as a family. We need a, we love a Bible. We need a, uh, your, Mary's having some problems at school. Pray for Mary. Okay, you pray, Joey. And Joey's going to, whoa, whoa, whoa. Daddy wants me to pray. And when you're done, it's over. Can you do that? Um, change their lives. Eighth grade education versus an articulate. And uh, this woman, to this day, is loves the socks off her husband. She just is very happy to be married to this guy. And he wasn't doing anything. He doesn't smoke anymore. He broke that one because uh, that was just part of his retreat and his woundedness. So don't feel like what I'm calling for is because of personality or education or intellect or reading abilities or all the things that would seem to make it hard. Don't, don't elevate what leadership is to an undoable thing. God did not design you to be an undoable person. Leadership will look different for different husbands and submission will look different for different wives, but there is a tone of responsibility and then you work within the constraints of your giftedness. So he he's just terrible with numbers. Let her do the checkbook. No big deal. But you've got to take responsibility for working it out that way. Don't just do nothing, you know. I don't, we don't do anything. And she's saying, these bills are just sitting here and they're old. You say, let's work this through. Now, frankly, I find it real hard to, to balance a checkbook. And you're really good at that. So can, can that little piece of our life be your job? I'll... This and this, and you do that. And, and he's taken that initiative. She doesn't have to say, come here. We need to talk about the finances. Nothing's working. Am I going to have to do this? It would just feel totally different to her if he said, 
No, I know I'm not really good at this. I tend to be forgetful, and I can't balance a checkbook very good. You're really good at that, and I'm more good at this. I'll make sure the car's always running, and I'll make sure the grass is always cut, and I'll make sure the paint is always on the house, and I'll make sure that the furnace is always working, and, and I want to care for you, but I'm really lousy at this. Can we just work it out that you do that? And, and from then on, it may feel like she's kind of in charge of that bailiwick. And she is. But she's in charge in a way that honors him and he's glad about it. I hope that gives you a flavor. Um, I have another question here, but I think postpone that one. Most people have asked about it. I'll tell you what it is so you can hold me accountable. Um, we, we're talking mainly here about marriage and and we're going to talk about the church some and and you're asking questions about the business world okay women and men in the business world and culture at large and how these things flesh out in a bank or or whatever and so i'll try to get there maybe at the q a time let's go to first peter and talk about the counterpoint maybe that's not the right word the complementary point to headship Namely, submission. So we're going to read these seven verses of First Peter 3 and talk what I find to be very helpful for women today who are under the influence of a lot of anti-complementarian thinking that submission is demeaning, it's slavish, it's... Uh, based on a sense of inferiority and so on, all those kinds of things, I, I, I find this text to be supremely useful for clarifying that that's not what it is. So, let's read it. First Peter. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one... That is one over to Christianity or to obedience if they are nominal Christians. I think these are unbelieving husbands here. Without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So you've got a wife who's married to an unbeliever. She wants him saved. And Peter's given her some advice about how to live with this man. And she should be with this man, that's for sure. He doesn't leave. Your adornment must not be external, merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. That's why they stuck in that word merely here. Because clothing here, this word clothing would mean what? You don't want me to wear a dress? So clearly the point is not don't do any braiding or any jewelry or any dresses. Be naked. Um, no, it, it is an emphasis thing, not an, a totally either-or thing. It's telling a wife, okay, you want this husband to be saved. You're going to win him with jewelry and sex? No. Now, don't take it too far. <laughs> it helps to be attractive. But I said, to, I said to my little girl, my head on her, my hand on her head, 
don't put your main energy, Talitha, into your hair and your figure and your clothes. Put some there so that you don't draw any attention to yourself because you're disheveled or uh, unkempt or whatever. But mainly this, I quoted this to her, let it rather be, so your adornment, what should your adornment be? Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, the former, you know, former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened in by any fear. So that's the address to women. Now here's the address to men. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Know them. Figure them out. As with someone weaker, a weaker vessel, literally, since she is a woman, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, let's tackle the issue of submission. What is it and what isn't it? I got about six things, I think, that submission is not. And saying these is very helpful in figuring out what it is. Submission to a husband is not, does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. 1 Peter 3, 1. In the same way you wives must be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them is disobedient to the word, they may be one. So clearly this woman is disagreeing with her husband's religious convictions. And her goal is to get him changed. Does that sound Submissive. Well, it, it can be. In other words, submission is not complying with a husband's intellectual, religious convictions if he's wrong. Number two, submission does not mean leaving your brain or your will at the wedding altar. Wives, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives means she's assessing with her brain the situation. They both went to hear the apostle speak. She listened, assessed, and believed. He listened, assessed, and disbelieved. She used her brain to come to a religious conviction different from her husband's, and that has put them into this situation. And that can be submissive. You don't, you don't, I think this is the next one, I was going to say it. You don't, you don't relate to truth through your husband's brain alone. If he says, this is the truth, and you have looked at the, you've listened to the apostle, 
And you say, no, 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 no. Jesus is the truth. That disagreement stands. And you can be submissive while that happens. Otherwise, this text makes no sense. Submission does not mean avoiding effort to change your husband. Same verse. She's trying to win him to Christ. So clearly, there are things the husband may believe or do that are wrong, and the wife's should be figuring out, how can I, as a submissive wife, help him change? That's not insubordinate to want to change your husband. Number four, submission does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. She has now become a daughter of God and a follower of of King Jesus, and this man now fits in here somewhere, and he's not at the top He's underneath. Jesus is at the top. God the Father's up there. And this man is now down here. And and Jesus sends her back into that relationship as a submissive wife, but not absolutely submissive. She has a new master, a new Lord, and she wants her husband to get on board with that. And he's telling her how to go at it. Number five. Submission does not mean that the wife gets her spiritual strength, mainly from her husband. And this relates to what we're talking about in terms of spiritual leadership. Yes, wives should lean on their husbands to take initiatives in spiritual leadership in the home, for the children in particular. But, but as far as her own relationship with Christ goes, what? look at this. When we over, verse 5, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. This woman, these old women, these towering examples of of hope got got their spiritual strength from God. They hoped in God, which led them into a fearless relationship with people, including their husbands. Submission does not mean acting out of slavish fear toward the husband because of that last phrase. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. That's amazing. You are the child of Sarah, women, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So she's not to act in a slavish, cowering way towards this man. She is free. She's full of confidence in God, who is her supreme Lord and Savior and Master. Number seven, submission does not mean blind or unqualified obedience to the husband. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So clearly, he is calling submission. It has this obedience component to it, which is, I think, a bent in the woman's heart towards compliance to her husband's leadership. But it isn't absolute. 
Because if the husband's an unbeliever and he tells her to say, Caesar is Lord, she's going to say no, which will mean disobedience. So the obedience here is not absolute. Because it assumes in verse 1 that she's not going with him to his religion. What's the Old Testament context here? This is very, very provocative. It says that she obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, little L. Was that, where, where did she do that? There's only one place where she did that. And it's most remarkable. I mean, if I were Peter and I were writing to shock people into the most radical form of submission in the Old Testament with Sarah, what, what would I say? I would say one time she was taken to Egypt. And Abimelech, the king, thought she was Abraham's sister so that he could add her to his harem. And Abraham went along and encouraged that mistake and put his wife at incredible risk sexually and physically, and she submitted. And he doesn't tell that story. What, what story does he tell? What, 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 what does it mean when he says he called her Lord? Here's the text. Genesis 18. And they said to him, these three men who'd come along, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So she's, what, 90 years old, and Abraham is 100, and she's been barren all her life. She's never had a baby. And, and this angel, representing God, says she's going to have a son next year. Sarah was listening at the tent door, so she's not in the conversation. She's listening. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased. So she's beyond menopause, right? To be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That's the only place in the Bible where Sarah calls him Lord. And Peter picks up on that? Like, <laughs> why? I see, here's my take. I mean, I, I don't know for sure, but my guess is since he ignores all these incredible illustrations of her actually being amazingly submissive, and he picks up on this one, could it be that what he's trying to say is here she is by herself? She has, Abraham's not around, and nobody's around. She's saying to herself this, 
And she spontaneously, in her stunned amazement, probably disbelief, simply casually refers to him as my Lord. It's just part of who she is. This is my husband. And she assigns him this strong name, uh, my Lord. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So I, I don't think Peter wants to call attention to an abusive demand for submission. I think he wants to call attention to a woman's, Sarah's, deep, natural, uncoerced expression of submission to her husband. And so he picks this seemingly insignificant situation where all by herself she calls him Lord. Concluding definition of submission. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Submission is an inclination of the will to say yes to the husband's leadership and a disposition of the spirit to support his initiatives. And that inclination word and disposition word are intended to show that when she has to deal with a sinning husband, even though she may have an inclination to say yes or a disposition to support, she may not be able to say yes and may not be able to support and still be submissive because she has the inclination to do it. In other words, if her husband says, let's go have some group sex down at the temple of Aphrodite, she's going to say, I can't because Jesus is my supreme Lord and I love you and I, I want to be your wife. I want to be a good wife, but I can't, I can't go there. I can't do that. That's, that's over the line of what I, as now a Christian, can do. So I use words like, submission is an inclination of the will to say yes to the husband's leadership and a disposition of the spirit to support. And it is a wife's desire to honor and affirm her husband's leadership. So she's going to say to this unbelieving husband who suggests that they lie on their tax forms. I mean, that'd be a little more, you know, practical, wouldn't it? Let's just not report your own. Your, so if I were Noel and Noel goes out and she speaks now almost as much as I do to women's retreats and she brings home a hundred or five hundred buck honorarium. Now, I want that to go to the church, but that's got to go right onto our tax and nobody knows she's got it but her and me. So what if, what if I said to her, let's just take those couple thousand dollars this year and, and not report it as part of our income so we can save ourselves whatever percentage our taxes are. 
she should say to me at that point, I can't do that. No, I'm her head. I'm her leader. It'd be awful for me to say that, but she should just buck it right there. So that's my effort to come to terms with all those what submission is not in that text and admit from Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 that it's really there. And what is at stake, conclusion now, what is at stake is a lot of joy goes down the tubes if wife and husband don't fulfill these roles biblically and Christ's display to the world as the covenant head of the church and the church as the thrilled responder to and follower of Christ, that whole display goes out the window if a husband and a wife throw in the towel and try to just say, okay, this is just a totally egalitarian marriage. We will each do what we do wholly on the basis of our competencies and what you are as woman and what I am as man does not count here for the tone or the dynamic of how we relate as leader or follower. We get rid of that terminology and we do this together. When that happens, Christ as head of the church is no longer being displayed in that marriage. Concluding definitions, then, uh, of, we, I just gave you the, the one for wife. Now, here's the one for husband again. The divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like loving servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Now... There are objections, and I'll just deal with these quickly, I think, because I've probably already touched on them. What if the wife is more competent? Would you still think that a man should assume the responsibility of leader if he's less competent than she? And I began this session with an illustration of, yes, I do think he should. Objection number two. What about mutual submission? I promised you I'd be back to that text, verse 21. The most common objection to the picture I just painted of loving leadership and willing submission is the verse 21 teaches, that verse 21 teaches to be mutually, mutually submissive to each other. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, uh, Bill Ezekiel writes, by definition, mutual submission rules out hierarchical differences. That's a pretty sweeping statement. And it's dead wrong. And he knows it's dead wrong. Because of what he says in the footnotes. In other words, mutual submission... Is, is a reality between husband and wife, then it's, if it is, it's, it's a contradiction to say that the husband has a special responsibility to lead and the wife a special responsibility to support that leadership. Here's my answer to that objection. Simply not true. In fact, the writer who said that mutual submission rules out hierarchical relationships shows that it's not true a page later when he says... The church thrives on mutual subjection. I agree with that. 
in a spirit-led church, elders submit to the congregation in being accountable for their watch care. And the congregation submits to the elders in accepting their guidance. Hmm. Sounds a little hierarchical. On page 55, 51, 251, he even says, quote, The congregation submits to their leaders by obeying. In other words, when it comes to the church, he has no trouble seeing how mutual submission is possible between two groups, one of whom has the responsibility to guide and the other has the responsibility to accept guidance. And that's right. There's no contradiction between mutual submission and relationship of leadership and response. Mutual submission doesn't mean that both partners must submit in exactly the same ways. That's the key. That unlocks the seeming problem. Mutual submission, wife submit to your husband, husband submit to your wife, does not imply, in fact, it's explicitly ruled out by the context that they both submit in exactly the same ways. She has the same responsibility to lead as he does, and he has the same responsibility to submit. And so there is no such thing as leadership attaching to husband, unique submission attaching to wives. The church submits herself to Christ. Christ submitted himself to the church in one way, by a kind of servant leadership that cost him his life. And the church submits to her, herself to Christ in another way, by honoring his leadership and following him on the Calvary Road. So it's not true that mutual submission rules out a family pattern of Christ-like leadership and church-like submission. Mutual submission doesn't obliterate those roles. It transforms them. Very significantly transforms them. I mean, picture cultures like the one I described, the hut, the pastors, dealing with that issue. Mutual submission, where the, there is a kind of Submitting yourself to die for this woman, carry her loads. And there is a submitting to following that leadership. And I told you I'd be back to whether or not head meant source. This is a very sophisticated objection raised by those who know Greek. So I won't spend a lot of time on it since there's no way you can assess it uh, without reading about 3,000 documents, you know, to see whether you think. Wayne Grudem is right. Does head really mean leader? What about source? One common objection to the pattern of leadership and <clears throat> the pattern of leadership and submission is that the term head does not carry the meaning of leadership at all. Instead, it means source, somewhat like the word fountainhead or head of a river. So, to call a husband the head of his wife wouldn't mean that he is to be leader, but that he's, in some sense, her source or her fountain head. Uh, instead of reading, let me just paraphrase my, my response to that. Um, okay, suppose that were true. I think it's not the case, 
Wayne Grudem has this long article where he's read 3,000 sources to see where how head is used in all these sources and uh, concludes it, it doesn't mean that in this kind of context. So, but you can't do that. All you can do is read your Bible. And that's really all you need to do. Because if you look at your Bible and you say, okay, we have Ephesians 5 here. It says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and is the, himself its savior. And the wife should submit. And you look at that and you say, hmm, fountainhead just doesn't seem to work here. Or you might say, well, let's try to make it work. All right. Christ is the head and husband is head. So the picture in Ephesians 5 is head on a body, right? Head here, body here. That's the picture. So now we've got a head sitting on top of a body, husband on wife, and the head is not considered to be leader. It's considered to be source. And so you have to ask source of what? And, and the head sits on top of the body to be the source of, well, the eyes are in the head, mouth is in the head, ears are in the head. So just take those three. This source is he, the mouth eats, and so the head nourishes in the sense. It goes like that. So now you've got husband nourishing, and the eyes see so that they don't stumble over things, and guides. So now you've got guidance, and the ears hear somebody sneaking up on you, and turns quick and protects. So we're back where we started. It won't work. It, it, it's a weaseling. It, it's, a, it's a desperate attempt to get away from what the Bible is so plainly teaching. People have seen it for years and years that when a husband is called to be a head like Christ, it means all those precious things. It means take the initiatives in the family that need to be taken. It means protect this woman at all costs to your life. And it means take the initiative to be the primary see-to-it person that this family is cared for, provided for. Now, we're going to shift gears here and uh, move toward church. And uh, maybe before I go here, I should pause and answer that other question. This might be the right place to do it. The question, the young people asked it last night in our session with the high schoolers. Somebody asked it last night to me. Two people asked me this morning. So clearly, the most burning issue statistically from my little survey of five people is that uh, how this works itself out in the marketplace is, is, is on your minds. And that's quite understandable. If we had lived 200, 300 years ago, that wouldn't be the burning issue that it is today because the roles were so clearly defined. Women had to fit in, uh, in on the farm in, in a way that the man could only do some things. The woman could collect the eggs. She probably couldn't manage the plow and the big horse. Uh, those kind of, so she was always working. He was always working, and everything just kind of fit. And But today, everything's up for grabs because all jobs are open to everybody, and uh, and women is as good as men in almost all the jobs that are available, except maybe some of the most heavy, heavy lifting kinds of things. So, um, what do we do then? Does does all of this talk about leadership have any bearing out there in the world, or is that just related to 
church and just re- which we haven't gotten to yet. We will. Or, and does it just relate to home? And frankly, there are some complementarians who are, are, are willing to just go that far and no farther. They say, this is clear from the Bible in the home. This is clear from the Bible in the church that there's headship and submission for men. But outside that, we don't say anything. Because the Bible doesn't say much. Um, I, 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 that would be such a comfortable position to take. I don't take it. I mean, I, I don't feel like I can leave you there. Like, okay, you walk out of your home where you are submissive to this leader, and that has zero bearing. And the reason I don't leave you there is because I have argued that this dynamic between man and woman is rooted in your nature. I haven't argued that this is an arbitrary Bible layer on top of your egalitarian soul. I've argued God made you men to lead and God made you women to delight in that leadership. That's what I've argued because I think that's what Genesis is saying. And I think Paul is saying it when he goes back to pre-fall creation to talk about what he's talking about in the mystery of marriage. So I don't have the luxury of just saying, you go figure that out. Uh, I, I believe I have to give you some guidance. So... In this, in this uh, book, What's the Difference, on page uh, oh, 61 to, to 64, is my best shot at it. And, and I'm going to try to summarize this. I might even read a part of it. But let me tell you where I'm going. My approach, as I look at the, the world and the hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands, of kinds of relationships you can have in the workplace as male and female... It would be hopeless, it seems to me, for me to come up with a list of woman jobs and man jobs. So here you've got a list. Women may do these and men may do these and they shouldn't cross over. That's just hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. It just it, it, it would get me nowhere and I, I couldn't do it. I don't know enough about the world. I couldn't begin to make the list exhaustive. So what do you do then? How do you give any guidance to women and men? And my answer is um, I I. Try to give some principles and realize we're living with mega ambiguity from then on in the workplace. And try not to be too judgmental ab- about what jobs we see each other have. So here are my principles. Drawing on all I've seen so far about the meaning of headship and submission rooted in our natures, it seems to me that... Um, How a woman influences another person matters. And that influence happens on, here's on page 62, on continuums. There's personal and there's non-personal influence. So personal, by personal I mean she's face to face with a man. And non-personal, her influence would be through a bunch of intermediaries, but she's not face-to-face. There's no per- nothing personal about this influence or, or guidance. And the other continuum is directive and non-directive. So you can give influence or leadership in a very directive way. You go and you do this. Or non-directive, something way less forceful than that. 
suggestions, commendations, uh, hints, modeling. Now, you got those two? You got directive and non-directive and personal and non-personal. So here's my little grid. If I knew how to do graphs, I would graph it for you. But I don't know how to do that. Um, to the degree, women, so women know, that you are in a role that is very directive, I think your nature would incline it to be less personal and more non-personal. To the degree that you're in a relationship where your relationship man is very personal, very face-to-face, you will, you will try to find non-directive. It won't feel as directive. You feel the, the, what I'm trying to do here? It might help to give you some illustrations that might help. I, I'm just going to admit that when I'm done here, it's going to be ambiguity all over the place. And I really think that's the way we live most of our lives. You will, as a woman, with a certain sense of what's appropriate, will move into a job, and after a year or two... It is calling forth from you some relationships that you just start feel uncomfortable with, and you'll just move. That's just the way it works. You won't, you won't say, oh, sin or something. You'll just, you'll just say, that's just, I don't sense this is who I am. This is right. So I want to move over and change jobs. So um, where shall I pick this up? I'll just try to think of it myself. I think... Um, one of the most directive jobs would be a drill sergeant. Hut, two, three, four. Hut, two, three, four. Halt! About face! She gets up and... Get that smile off your face, Smith! That's the way the military works. I just don't think a woman should do that. Because you've got coming together there mega directiveness and mega personal. Just right here. And our military is set up in a way that that happens. One man came up to me, was it last night or this morning? I lost track. And said his son went to a camp and that's exactly the situation he found himself in. A woman giving that kind of very forceful directive. And the son just came back, Ooh, it doesn't feel right to me. And I think that's just down in his nature. He's, he doesn't have to be an arrogant man. to feel. He may be very humble and not feel right about that. However, what if a woman is, uh, say, a civil engineer... Planning the traffic patterns of downtown Minneapolis. And in that way, guiding which direction men go every day. She's totally deciding which way men are driving on 8th Avenue. Is that a one-way street or is that a two-way And she studies it and decides, we're going to make that a one-way street. And now she's totally governing which direction all you men drive on 8th Street. And, and it's totally impersonal. That's what I mean by impersonal. She's not there on every corner. You can't go here. You can't go here. You go that way. Which would feel like, uh, what's she doing that for? But she just decided at her desk, drawing these things, and 
Now that's out there. And I would say, no problem. Because it's, it's not a, a male-female thing. It's not in-your-face personal. And so the whole sexual dynamic of it is, is irrelevant. Another example would be, she's an architect. And an, an architect, when, when she draws her plans, she's governing what a thousand workmen do every day. And most of them are men. Putting this building up. Doing the electricity and the heating and, and, uh, and, and the way everything works. And she's drawn it all. So her, her draws is so... Those, that kind of influence or control or direction is very impersonal. Another example of the, of the other would be uh, a um, professional baseball umpire. You're out! And the guy turns around, don't you say a word or you're out of this game. You, know, you don't deal with, I'm an umpire, my word holds here. Steerike! Take your base, or uh, you're out of here. Take your seat, Mr. Manager. I just don't think so. Or you know what would happen? Are there any? Anybody know? Are there, are there women umpires? Maybe there are. Right? What? Women referees. Women referees. Okay. Um, the I think what would happen is that it would just transform the role. <laughs> it would. Over time, if women became uh, largely dominant in umpire, in umpire roles behind there like this, it would change how she said it. It would feminize the role. Now, others would kill. That's a good idea, feminize that role. But I'm just illustrating that if umpiring is done the way it's traditionally been done, it would strain the role I'm going to quote you from J.I. Packer. Strain her femininity. God, the God-given, this is page 63, the God-given sense of responsibility for leadership in a mature man will not generally allow him to flourish long under personal directive leadership of a female superior. J.I. Packer suggested that, quote, a situation in which a female boss has a male secretary puts a strain on the humanity of both. Strain, breaking strain. One last illustration, then we're going to pause. Um, a woman who's a manager in a bank and a man who's a courier. Okay? He rides his bike between buildings downtown or he drives a little yellow truck and his job all day long is to deliver parcels between businesses. Simple job, don't lead a lot of education. She's highly educated and, and significant role in that bank. And now how does she relate to this guy when he comes in? And my argument would be um, she would, if she embraced everything I've been saying, she would find creative and affirming ways to be submissive. She's clearly in charge here. She's telling him where to take this package, and she's getting paid 50000 more than he is, and, and, uh, and, and she's dressed in a suit, and he's dressed in jeans, and everything about it makes, makes her feel like power and him feel like... Mm. Um, and, and she will care about that. She will care about that. She, she will want to honor him as a man, and she will find ways to do it. And, and he will want to relate to her if he's 
buying into this as well, to provide some kind of sense of protection and provision and leadership here in, in, in some way that might be possible. And the illustration I gave to the high schoolers last night was um, um, she could say to him, for example, at the close of the day, um, uh, I'm parked in the parking ramp out there. Would you mind walking me to my car? Now, she's got to trust this guy to do that, of course, and maybe a relationship is developed. <clears throat> what that says to him is she, she, she honors me as a man. She needs me. She feels like she could use my help here, and something comes into him is, I will rise to the occasion to protect this woman at any cost because she's just expressed some sense of dependency on me. That would be one little simple way she might bestow upon him a flavor of his own manhood. So um, let me pray and ask God to take this section and make it understandable, helpful. Father, I'm sure that there's much more that could be said that I've never thought of. And I pray that you would take these friends beyond where I am in their maturity and their growth, their understanding, and grant that we both in church and in home and in the workplace would find creative ways to give expression to our manhood and womanhood in a way that sets up a, a beautiful dynamic in culture and home and church that honors Jesus Christ. In his name I pray.